Welcome to Real Atheology, a philosophy of religion podcast. I'm your host, Ben Watkins, and I'm joined by my co-hosts... Ben Baver and John Lopolato. And we are joined again by our guest... Felipe Leon. Felipe Leon, we've had you on once before. Can you remind some of our listeners what we talked about last time before we move on into our new discussion? Sure. Um, last time I was on the show, um, I talked about a, uh, an argument, a new argument. I take to be a new argument against theism called um, sort of the argument, uh, uh, the problem of creation ex nihilo or creation out of nothing. And I argue that... Um, Creation ex nihilo is metaphysically impossible, or at the very least, we have no good reason to think that it is. Um, and so since classical theism entails the possibility uh, of God creating ex nihilo, and in fact, in any world where there's a world of concrete objects distinct from God, God creates them ex nihilo, um, that entails that uh, classical theism is false. That is Real Atheology, episode 12, which you could find on our YouTube channel. <laughs> nice. All right. And uh, so, uh, Felipe, what are we going to discuss today? Um, I'm hoping to discuss um, something that I'm working on right now in philosophy of religion. Um, I'm basically taking ideas that go back to my doctoral dissertation um, on modal epistemology, uh, in particular, our knowledge of what is metaphysically possible, um, sort of possible full stop. And um, I want to make the argument that, um, well, a couple arguments. One argument is that our knowledge of what's possible is restricted to the relatively humdrum or nearby. Um, and since that's true, um, and since a lot of arguments in natural theology depend on uh, some premise of what's possible, uh, where these possibility claims are not um, close to ordinary experience, they're usually far out possibilities, um, all arguments of that sort are bound to fail. Um, so that's one thing I want to say. Another thing I want to say is the fact that our knowledge of possibility is limited to the relatively humdrum, um, that's actually evidence against classical theism if it should turn out that um, knowledge of God relies crucially on modal knowledge of what's possible. So when you say that it it relies crucially of our knowledge of these modal truths, is this an epistemological argument or a modal argument or a combination of the two, or what would you say it's a primary type of argument? Ah, uh, nice. Um, it's a little bit of both. I guess primarily it's an epistemological argument. It's an argument um, sort of if theism is true, we'd expect to have the necessary prerequisites to have adequate knowledge of God. Um, but that prerequisite isn't you know, met because that requires modal knowledge um, that we don't have, in particular modal knowledge that we don't have. Um, and since we would expect to have the prerequisites of what's required to have knowledge of God, if God existed, or at least the God of classical theism, that counts as at least some disconfirming evidence against classical theism. So so sort of like I'm sorry, what's that? Uh, so uh, we want to say that uh, our modal knowledge is rather limited, whereas theism implies that our modal knowledge would be not so limited. It would require it's, us to have modal knowledge that's not close to the humdrum. And yeah. so that part seems pretty plausible because natural theology certainly uses, you know, grand modal claims. And yeah. so it seems like there's a case that has to be made that our modal knowledge is limited to the humdrum. Yeah. So tell us, tell us a little bit more about that. Cause it seems like everything's going to turn on that. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah. This is sort of like the crucial, the crucial case to be made. So I've given a defense in my dissertation that our knowledge is limited to the humdrum. And then I've sort of slowly am putting things out um, from my dissertation on that topic. Um, I like a book with uh, Bob Fisher called modal epistemology after rationalism, which is a collection of papers that talk about it at least partly, if not completely, 
uh, modal knowledge is completely or partly dependent on empirical knowledge of the actual world. And so we start with knowledge of the actual world, and then by deduction, induction, and abduction, we can infer what's possible from what's actual. So to take a simple case, I know that the lime in my kitchen could be sliced in half because, uh, so it's possible that my light, my kitchen uh, lime can be sliced in half because I've cut other limes in half in my kitchen. And this one's relevantly similar to those, so probably it's possible to cut that one. And so um, you say, well, this is actual, um, you know, so-and-so is possible because it's actual. Well, there's relevantly similar poss uh, scenarios like that, so they're probably possible as well. So that's one kind of uh, sort of empiricist account of modal epistemology, at least of our knowledge of metaphysical possibility. Okay. So I, I know that uh, Richard Swinburne and certainly other uh, philosophers of religion, certainly in analytic traditions, make a lot of use of the principle that um, conceivability um, implies or at least strongly suggests this metaphysical possibility. This, a lot of these arguments would, would undermine that. Am I, am I right in saying that? Yes, exactly. So assuming I can establish, and I think I can establish, at least to make a, a plausible case that our knowledge is limited to the humdrum, these sorts of arguments are bound to fail. But yeah, I do, I do give direct arguments against these other competing accounts of possibility that are more um, liberal, I would say, and permissive and freewheeling in, into what they count as what's possible. David Chalmers um, comes to mind with... Yeah, David Chalmers is sort of the modal rationalist par excellence. Yeah. And so I give a critique of that sort of account. But And, and I can talk about those in a minute if you like. But yeah, I'm going to say that... Um, Assuming I can give an account of our knowledge of possibility and show that all the other accounts that say that imply that our knowledge of our uh, beyond the humdrum is possible uh, are failures, <laughs> I'm going to apply this point to different arguments for God. So cosmological arguments, ontological arguments and arguments for dualism or substance dualism about the mind. I'm not sure yet. I'm still thinking about whether I can apply it to other arguments but I'm going to show that those arguments rely on a crucial possibility premise that's far out. <laughs> it, isn't, it isn't like the lime in my kitchen can be cut in half. Well, yeah. I, I was yeah. about to ask if this is mainly aimed at the contingency argument, but it sounds like you've got quite a family to go after there. Yeah. So I, I would say something like to the extent that these are, these cosmological arguments depend on, a possibility premise. Yeah, I primarily have in mind the contingency argument, but they might well apply to uh, certain thought experiments that William Lane Craig has brought up in the, in defense of the Kalam cosmological argument about the, you know, uh, you know his arguments against actual infinites. Hilbert's hotel and yeah, that sort of exactly. thing. Exactly. There might be might well be problems there. Yeah, so I'll do that, and then and then the final thing I'm going to do is give this independent argument that our modal are limited the fact that our knowledge is of possibility is limited to the humdrum is also itself evidence against theism so that's kind of my project. i saw it being most applicable or most obviously applicable to the ontological argument like you said because the, the crucial yeah. premise of that immodal claim saying that you know perfect being theism that is defined as necessarily existent is possible Yes, exactly. Right. That's exactly right. And that's probably the argument I'll start off with, like the first chapter I'll start off with after the case for sort of what I call mitigated modal skepticism is, is what I take as, as established cool. or as plausible. So it seems to me that your argument for mitigated modal skepticism is something that would appeal to an atheist who like believes that um, we evolved by an unguided blind process. Yeah. That would probably only give us modal knowledge uh, of the relatively humdrum, right? But yeah. um, if you're a theist, then can't you just say that, for instance, God designed us with knowledge of these pretty extreme kinds of modal claims, right? Yes. Someone like Planet yes, exactly. 
That's right. So I do have to address those. So for example, I'm going to have to give a case to motivate the theist to think that our knowledge is limited in this way by saying, well, give me an example of a, a claim and how you know it, and I will give you a defeater. <laughs> you know, Planiga's case is interesting because it, it uh, is uniquely interesting in a defense of modal knowledge because his account depends on a more general account of warranted belief, and we can talk about that. But I'm going to, I would just argue that Planiga's account of warrant is implausible. So, <laughs> I, yeah, I think I agree there. But then what if you sort of marry, well, the view that God designed our faculties with just a reliableist account of warrant, right? You could just say um, what it is for our beliefs to be warranted is that they're formed by reliable cognitive faculties. And God could have designed us so that our faculties would be reliable. But you don't have to say that anything about proper function here, proper yeah. function being um, required for warrants. Make this yeah, that's right. That's right. So I do, I do um, give arguments to think that our modal judgments about remote claims are, in fact, unreliable. In fact, okay. I think I can show that at most the reliability is 50%, in which case that's enough to show that they're unreliable. Um, you'd have to show, at least on standard reliableist accounts of knowledge and justification, the, the ratio of true to false beliefs has to be above 0.5 or 50%. Um, okay. So you know, one direct way to do that is to show that for any conceivability claim remote from ordinary experience, there is a parity claim that can be justified equally well. So um, one claim comes from the Christian philosopher Peter Van Inwagen in his famous paper, Modal Epistemology, uh, where he argues that, um, I mean, one of the things he does, he's a, a mitigated modal skeptic, and I should say my view, my own account owes a lot to his. But say, you know, um, for any uh, conceivability claim remote from ordinary experience, you can give a parody argument. So, for example, someone could say, um, you know, uh, well, he gives a number of arguments, but someone could say, possibly my mind exists apart from my body. So whatever, whatever is conceivable is possible. Therefore, it's possible. Um, but if you, if you say that, um, you could give a counter argument to say, well, suppose I have independent grounds to think that, say, well, whatever is material is essentially material. And I have independent reasons to think that I'm actually material then it's impossible for me to have any material soul. That's sort of, that's not quite his argument, but that's just sort of a more intuitive version of his argument. So it turns out you can just generalize this to, about, to just about any far out possibility claim. So one of the, one of the, one of his most famous parody arguments is a parody argument against, oh, I should say parity, not parody, uh, parity <laughs> argument is against Planiga's modal ontological argument. Planiga says, uh, as Ben Watkins mentioned earlier, uh, Planiga says, you know, it's possible that there's a necessarily existing God, right? A maximally great being or maximally excellent being. And uh, that implies they exist in all possible worlds. So by axiom S5 of S5 modal logic, God necessarily exists and therefore actually exists. He says, wait a minute, what makes you think it's possible? Right? Well, it's conceivable. And uh, well, what do you mean by conceivable? When I think about it, I can, I can either can, you know, sort of flesh out at least superficially a coherent scenario where there is such a being and I see no incoherence in the notion. So that's enough to clear it as being a justified possibility claim. He says, well, I can do the same thing with, uh, thinking there is no such being. Imagine, uh, there's a no-no, right? A being that knows there's no necessary being. So if it's possible, I don't see anything incoherent in the notion of a no-no, a being who knows, or knows there's no necessary beings. There's at least one possible world then where there's, there's a no-no. But if there's a no-no, he knows there's a no, being, a no necessary being in that world, in which case it is true in that world, uh, right? Knowledge is a factive 
term or a success term. So if you know something, then it's true. So it's true in that world that there's no necessary being. So by axiom S5, there's no necessary being in any world. So there's no, there is no necessary being. That's awesome. It's really interesting because that is the counter to the ontological argument that Planning uh, actually addresses when he laid out the ontological argument. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but it's it's sort of uh, it's just in general it's going to turn out that uh, you can give a parody. Right. Right. Okay. So you can. The point of the the point of going through the counter is to say that for. Any belief in a a modal possibility that you can basically make a parody of the opposite principle, effectively, and have it be just as plausible. Yes, exactly. And so, um, since that's true, right, if we're justified in believing either one, we're justified in believing both. (laughs) Right. Uh, But they can't both be true, so they cancel each other out. So 50% of our high-flying, far-out modal claims are false. We know that because they can't both be true, and so the probability can't be above. So I I have a question. So could you see a theist possibly pushing back on this by trying to turn the tables and saying that, look, your position implies that we have this radical skepticism towards modal claims, but we do have this modal knowledge, so that's... You know, and since God would be necessary for us to have reliable knowledge of this, this could be like a transcendental argument for God's existence. Kind of like with a moral argument where the nihilist could just, moral nihilist could just say, look, you, you don't get any of these moral claims because they're just too implausible. Like a Morian shift. A Morian shift. Yes, there, this is a Morian yes. shift. Very nice. Um, in fact, in my dissertation and in my chapter from modal skepticism to modal empiricism, I, I do that. I just I say there's this sort of Morian argument that gives pushback against this modal skepticism. You can say, hey, Felipe, if you, you know, if you're right, then this generalizes to all possibility claims, in which case you could be you should be a radical modal skeptic. So a radical modus, modal skeptic says that we can't know any possibility claims right not even nearby ones like my the line in my kitchen could be cut in half so i call this the popular argument because it's usually the one that's given um you know if you're right then we can't have any modal knowledge but that's nuts um surely i know my um the line in my kitchen could be cut in half or the door in the in the room across the hall could be opened or closed. Think of all the coronas that would be wasted if you could. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I have to do. We should. There, something must be wrong with the argument. So it is. It's sometimes called a Morian argument because G.E. Moore said, "Right, I know skepticism about the external world. You know, radical perceptual knowledge skepticism about the external world is false because if that were true, I couldn't know that I had hands. Right, but here they are. Here's one hand. Here's another." Um, so something must be wrong with it, even if I can't say what's wrong with it. And so to respond to this, uh, there is pressure for the mitigated modal skeptic to give a principled line between justified and unjustified possibility claims. And I try to do that in my dissertation. How, how powerful do you think that? Because the, obviously the, that Morian shift is really powerful when we're talking about something like external world skepticism. But do you think it just loses that power when we move to the realm of modal knowledge? Yes. A couple of things I say in reply. So one thing that you can say in reply is, hey, that's right. Um, You can agree with the critic and say, yeah, certainly I know lots of perceptual claims, even if I don't know how I know them. You know, I have these perceptual seemings of my hands. Maybe, you know, I can't rule out they're caused by matrix simulated hand experiences, right? And I'm a handless brain in the back, but uh, no, I can't rule out that possibility with my evidence, but still I know, I know, you know, or at least I'm entitled to think I'm in the, you know, I have hands. Why? Because of the sort of the epistemic and doxastic force of those beliefs that I have hands, right? Um, once I hold what I think are my hands in front of me, it generates this sort of, um, sort of unsinkable belief that I do have hands. And even while staring at my hands and I, I raise all these skeptical doubts, it doesn't do anything 
to sink my confidence that I have hands, right? Or, or does, you know, they're sort of unsinkable. They have strong force into vivacity. And so, and they have strong epistemic force. It seems like my experiences or my seemings justify those perceptual claims. And I'm just going to say that's right. Similarly, for lots of modal claims, they have this sort of doxastic and epistemic force that's analogous to the doxastic and epistemic force of hand belief, right? So when I think about the possibility of cutting lime in my kitchen, the lime in my kitchen, it has the same exact doxastic and epistemic force as that my hands in front of my hand, uh, eyes when I hold them up or take myself to be doing so. And so you could say, well, look, by, by parity of reasoning, if what justifies a belief is this sort of Morian quality to it, this sort of strong doxastic and epistemic force, then that alone is sufficient to keep me from becoming a radical modal skeptic. We agree that if a belief has sort of Morian force, then it's justified, even if I don't know how to justify it. And so that right there is sufficient to prevent radical modal skepticism if it, if it does for perceptual skepticism. The second thing I do is actually roll up my sleeves and give an account of our knowledge of possibility. So I say that, look, we have a lot of modal knowledge of possibility from perceptual knowledge and testimonial knowledge, just from a deductive inference from actual actuality to possibility. So I know my car can be, you know, painted silver because it is painted silver. And so whatever is actual is possible. I just deduce its possibility from its actuality. So you have a lot of modal knowledge right there. You can expand it with testimonial knowledge of actuality. Someone tells you that um, coffee's on sale at Starbucks today. And now I know it's possible <laughs> to be for Starbucks coffee to be on sale. Appearances to the contrary. But yeah, so, you know, that's one way. Another way is enumerative induction. So... I've seen a lot of tables and chairs moved around, right? So probably this one. So um, those are all possible, right? Those scenarios where they're moved around are possible because they're actual. So probably it's possible for this chair to be moved around. So you can get enumerative, enumerative induction, justification. You can get arguments from relevant similarity, so myself, Peter Hawk, and Sonia Roca-Royas all have independent accounts of similarity-based empiricist modal knowledge. You know, maybe I've never seen, you know, a, what's an exotic fruit, you guys? Help me out. Um, what's a really exotic fruit? A durian. Yeah, a durian. I'm thinking of uh, Zelda now. <laughs> exactly where I know it from. Yeah. <laughs> Breath yes. of the Wild, the yeah. best stamina fruit yeah, for our non-gamer right. friends of the Real Atheology Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. So, yeah, so yeah, you could say a durian fruit, or maybe, you know, uh, I've never seen one cut in half, but it's similar to other fruit I've seen cut in half, relevantly right. similar. So it can prob probably be cut in half, right? So, you know, I've never seen a car being painted, you know, the missing shade of blue. <laughs> um, but it's relevantly, that color is sim relevantly similar to other actually colored cars, so it's probably possible. Now you could say, well, it's tough to justify arguments from analogy. Sure, but that's a problem. You know, we, we believe that there are analogical arguments that are good, um, so that's no problem with some special problem with analogical modal knowledge. Um, gotcha. Um, so, it could so, even be inductive, couldn't it? Right? It could be you could, inductive, right? You yes. Could say, it could be, it could I've do, seen do, this do, color do. blue. I've seen almost every color I've managed to see. I've found a paint corresponding to that pigment. Therefore, yeah. it seems possible that I could have a paint of this color. Yeah, so a lot of times enumerative induction arguments, you know, analogy bleeds into enumerative induction in a lot of cases, uh, uh, as David Hume and subsequent people have, have 
hinted at or, or so, so yeah. So that's maniacally. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So you can, you can just fight this way. You can use abduction to say that, um, you know, well, I have say a scientific theory that implies that the fundamental constants of nature could have um, different numerical values assigned to them. This theory is justified abductively. It's a simple theory with wide explanatory scope. It's well confirmed. It's very conservative. So it accrues justification in virtue of embodying the theoretical virtues. It, that theory entails the possibility of a universe with different constants assigned to it, or at least the possibility. So it's thereby justified. Um, you know, you can justify modal claims uh, counterfactually, like Timothy Williamson and others do. So now, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, you only need one of these to succeed, correct? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, yeah, you're right. So it is sort of overkilling, but that's sort of... Um, it just speaks to the strength of your case, though, for yeah. making the current premise that you can over-determine, so to speak. Yeah, it's sort of like, here's a robust list of ways to justify possibility claims. Surely some of them work, at least one of them work. Now I have a principled line. I can say that a possibility claim is justified just in case it can be justified by one of these sorts of inferences from actuality, either deduction, induction, or abduction, or some sort of counterfactualist account. But now the question becomes, can we use any of these forms of justification uh, for modal beliefs to justify the premises in these theistic arguments, right? Exactly. And so I'm going to argue, no. (laughs) I think that, I mean, of course, that, as you're pointing out, then, you know, that takes showing. But we can give a couple examples. So before you do that, I kind of, you sort of almost did it felt like you were saying that the fine-tuning argument for example about how it seems the idea that the constants could have other possible values seems like to me the kind of far out modal claim that your skepticism would say we can't really be sure of that or am I mistaken well that's the thing is it's I mean a couple things to say here so so one is you could just, you could say, you know, you could sort of be sort of say this, make this persnickety point and say, well, all, all the scientific theory justifies is we, it's epistemically possible. That is, we can't rule it out. Our evidence doesn't rule it out as impossible that the values could be different, in which case, strictly speaking, we don't know that it is possible. We just know it, we just know that our evidence doesn't rule it out as impossible. But the second thing I would say is you can grant that and still say there's nothing about our scientific theories that say a maximally great being is possible or my mind could exist apart from my body or it's possible that no material objects or whatever they're made out of exist. So so your modal skepticism is far more aimed at these metaphysical principles that you will find in theistic arguments, not necessarily at things like values of constants in the laws of physics. Yes. So I leave out, so far anyway, I leave out the fine-tuning argument. I say it might be, you might be able to generate a fine-tuning argument for theism. I mean, I I think those arguments don't work for independent grounds. So it's not a complete sort of across-the-board defeater mm-hmm. for any possible argument for theism. But it does do a lot of... I mean, it does clear out enough to make it significant. That's a pretty good... That's a very interesting point, I think, to make. Yeah, it would be interesting to show, for example, theism's only hope is the fine-tuning argument or something like that. The other arguments you can just kiss goodbye. They, don't, they can't even work in principle. I have a question about if we... Uh, move away from the theistic argument, arguments for a second. We were mentioning earlier the argument of being inside of a matrix or Descartes' evil demon uh, deceiving us. Kind of all these arguments against our having, you know, uh, a perfect knowledge of the external world or something like that. Could these modal skeptic arguments um, 
apply to those? Could we undermine those arguments and say, look, this this possibility of this evil demon is just too far away from the humdrum to be of any use to us? Or is exactly. that exactly? Uh, go ahead. That's I, exactly. Yeah, I'd like to hear what you have to say on it. That's a very uh, astute point. Exactly. I think that these arguments can be have wider application and utility in philosophy proper, in philosophy in general, like epistemology. You could say, I don't know if it's possible that there is a, you know, I could be deceived by an evil demon. So um, those sorts of possibilities, I'm not justified in believing them as, as genuine metaphysical possibilities. So you can't you can't undermine perceptual knowledge of the actual world uh, with uh, those. So, so this could be responses to those skeptical arguments. I mean, these are those are perennial arguments of philosophy proper. Yeah, very nice point. In fact, I'm a little bit jealous because a guy on my dissertation committee, Peter Kung at Pomona College has beat me to the punch and has made this point in a paper. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So he, he's, he's pretty close to, um, he wrote a chapter in, in the modal epistemology after rationalism book. And he's, he's pretty close now to being a modal empiricist too. But yeah. So he, he seems to have shown one case of application for mitigated modal skepticism or modal empiricism outside of philosophy of religion by saying, Hey, we can, we have independent reason to, to doubt that certain skeptical scenarios are possible, like, uh, you know, uh, Cartesian evil demon scenarios where, and, you know, no material world exists. I don't have a body. I'm a disembodied soul. And then exactly two things exist, me and my soul. I mean, God and my soul. And God is constantly, through his omnipotence, generating sensations in my soul of a material world and me having a body, even though none of those things are true. You say, I don't know if this skeptical scenario is metaphysically possible because I can't justify it by one of the ways I've sketched. Interesting, because you see a lot of parallels in philosophy of religion that will appeal to those kinds of issues in philosophy in general to say, hey, look, even though I can't prove that uh, the external world is real, I'm justified in believing in it. And so then that's how you get into the Plantinga's properly basic belief of uh, God existing and that sort of thing. Yeah, parody arguments are popular today. Yeah, he get, Plantinga gives a parody argument that says belief in God is like belief in other minds. They're both Morian and uh, even though I can't rule out the skeptical possibilities, they're both justified. And, and right, now we can use modal skepticism to say, well, I don't know if they're, they're, they have parity there because, you know, I can rule out <laughs> at least some skeptical possibilities about perceptual knowledge. So, uh, so there seems to be, a. It, it feels like a link since we're talking about planning a, the evolutionary argument against naturalism that he likes to make. And we had discussed a possible answer to that with Graham Oppie in, in our interview with him. And ah. the idea was how we can have uh, reliable beliefs about specifically sense data. So very empirical. So the, the evolutionary argument against naturalism doesn't make you not a naturalist. It makes you a stronger empiricist. In order for our eyes to evolve, they have to be able to respond to something in the external world. And in order for them to have a evolutionary benefit, I have to believe that I'm seeing the same thing, you know, mm -hmm. at each kind of interval as I move it across my field of vision and my taste and my sense of touch and hearing and all that. Nice. I think I remember that interview. That was very cool. I was I remember being intrigued by uh, Hoppy's argument there, too. I mean, I haven't thought about it enough, but I mean, off, on the face of it, that sounds like a good reply. There's somebody, uh, Peter Graham at UC Riverside, kind of broaches something like that, because he has a proper functionalist account of Warrant, um, but it's atheistic. It's yes. sort of, yeah. Uh, and he says something like this. Well, we have good grounds from um, perceptual psychology, from evolutionary theory that reliable truth tracking beliefs about perception help us survive and reproduce under ordinary conditions. Right. So the idea would be our beliefs. So this how this ties back into your argument, you would say, yes, 
Alvin uh, Plantinga, you were correct. Our mental faculties, given the truth of evolution about remote epistemic modal claims, are unreliable, right? There's no basis for that. Where we get our reliable beliefs are from sense data or empirical facts, right? So that's where I'm thinking there might be a relation. Ah, very nice. I hadn't thought about that connection. Now you're pushing me to think about it. If I, I do what I can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Doing philosophy. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think eventually we're going to have to move on to the question of whether it really challenges theism if some arguments for theism don't work. Like, is that an argument for atheism or is it just a reply to arguments in favor of theism? Oh. That's right. I'm glad you brought that up. So it sort of brings into sharp focus. Um, the scope of these sorts of points I'm, I'm trying to make. Um, so it's sort of a two-pronged approach. The first prong is sort of just negative, right? It's a critique of certain categories of arguments for God, uh, at least for classical theism. The other prong is a positive, sort of tries to make a positive point to say that the very fact that our knowledge of possibility is limited in these ways provides at least some disconfirming evidence um, against theism. And I could just I could just briefly sketch that. I've sketched this argument in a chapter in the Katursky and Oppie volume, Theism and Atheism, Opposing Arguments in Philosophy, in the chapter, um, sort of an atheistic uh, account of a priori knowledge. But I argue that it's interesting that sort of the, the epistemic and doxastic force of our modal intuitions peter out just where inferences from actuality to possibility peter out. It's interesting that they peter out at all. If theism is true, it's sort of surprising. Why not just have really souped up modal knowledge, especially if our knowledge of theism depends on modal knowledge uh, at, the, at the heart of certain arguments in uh, natural theology? Um, by, by contrast, it's not at all mysterious if naturalism of some kind is true, because then you're expecting the, the primary shaper of our modal intuitions to be whatever is conducive to survival and reproduction. And so, yeah, it makes sense that we have the modal knowledge we have because, you know, knowledge of nearby possibilities like, you know, can I cross the street before getting hit by a truck or can I slice that lemon in half or lime in half? help me evaluate risks and opportunities in my environment, which in turn help me survive and reproduce. And it's not at all surprising that my knowledge is limited to that because far out modal knowledge isn't obviously relevant to my surviving and reproducing. So the very nature and scope and limits of our modal knowledge, at least our knowledge of possibility, provides at least some confirming evidence for uh, naturalism. It's sort of like, um, I'm thinking of Richard Swinburne's distinction between C-inductive arguments and P-inductive arguments, where C-inductive arguments provide at least some confirming evidence, raise the probability of a hypothesis, where P-inductive arguments show, establish their probability. They're at least slightly more probable than not. And so I'm taking this as at least a C-inductive argument for naturalism. Okay. Well, so it seems to me now that this is kind of a hiddenness argument. And I know on your blog you made this post of, about, well, that mentioned the argument from mitigated modal skepticism for atheism. It was an item in a list of dozens of atheistic arguments, and you wanted to show that there were more kinds of arguments that atheists could make for their position than just the problem of hiddenness and the problem of evil. And, and for theism, there are lots of different kinds of arguments that can be pro- provided because recently the book two dozen or so arguments for god was published right and they don't yeah. all necessarily fall under the same categories yes i'm glad you brought that up it's it's just sort of a it's sort of a hobby horse of mine and uh, lately just to make the point that i'm guessing there are hundreds and hundreds of atheistic arguments out there and the same thing for theism there's a lot more of it in presented as you as you nicely point out mm-hmm. in the recent volume, there's a lot more arguments for theism than, you know, the standard arguments of cosmological, ontological, teleological arguments and so forth. So anytime you have a piece of data that's surprising on theism, but not on naturalism, 
you thereby have evidence against theism. And just, you know, we could just take a couple of days just thinking about things that you wouldn't expect on theism, uh, but, but you would expect on naturalism. And just so many new considerations come up that just never get brought up. You know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's just a bummer that it, because then, you know, people get the impression, people who follow this, these sorts of discussions of philosophy of religion, and especially people who study apologetics, uh, but also philosophy of religion, analytic philosophy of religion, um, get the impression that, hey, there's a bunch of arguments for theism, but there's one, maybe two arguments for atheism. And doesn't that look bad? And I'm like, that does kind of look bad when you put it that way, but it's just not true. They're just, you know, at least, I think I listed now 50 arguments against theism that, you know, individually, you know, collectively... <laughs> It gives you a picture of the basic character of the world that just doesn't look like a theistic world. So it's sort of part of this larger document of sort of contributing to a larger list of arguments. And that's all to the good, right? It gives us a wider range of evidence to evaluate claims in philosophy religion. But yeah. I, I thought we just said, so ben, Ben's, what Ben said and what I thought I thought he was saying was that this kind of thing about how our modal knowledge cuts off roughly about where we want to make modal inferences and arguments for the existence of God. But then doesn't that boil down to a hiddenness argument? Yeah, maybe I should flesh that out. It sounds like Uh, you're not getting a new one. You're just a new variant on the hiddenness argument. Oh, yeah, sort of like, um, I see. Thanks for clarifying that. So is it sort of like God's, hidden in the modal realm as well. it's sort of like yeah it's sort of like he allows sort of non-resistant non-belief to be possible through lack of sufficient i'm just not seeing the connection guys i feel really dumb right now <laughs> yeah i'm talking about the yeah it's the lack of sufficient evidence that's kind of a hiddenness because if there are if we can't make good arguments using these possibility premises right then we have less in favor of theism. So, so cor- correct me if I'm wrong, but the hidden argument argues that our knowledge of God would be immediate such that we could have a relationship that's meaningful with God. In d- Does that require this robust modal knowledge in order to have that kind of relationship? And it's not immediately obvious to me that it is. And so if we're, if, if you know, if uh, we're going to convince a theist with, with a premise like this, why I think that the type of relationship that seems to be necessary for the premise and the hiddenness argument, why would that require grand modal, knowledge of grand modal claims? Correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but you were saying that this argument could be just a variant of the hiddenness argument. Yes. Okay, and so my confusion is how this is a variant of the hiddenness argument. Yeah. That was so, where my confusion was coming in. I, I, I don't, it's not obvious to me that this is a variant of the hiddenness argument. Yeah, so I'm not really saying that it's it's specifically a kind of like Schellenberg-style hiddenness argument where where you say that there's non-resistant non-belief and there wouldn't be non-resistant non-belief if there were a god. But I'm saying that there's kind of similar argument that if we don't have sufficient arguments with these possibility premises, you know, in favor of theism, then we don't have sufficient evidence for theism. And then if we don't have sufficient evidence, that's kind of a hiddenness, like not apparent that God exists if there's not good evidence for that claim. Um, And also it could promote non-resistant non-belief if they're aren't th- these good arguments because someone could have, you know, really put a lot of effort into thinking about the arguments in favor of God's existence and found that the arguments that employ these possibility premise- premises are doubtful because of the considerations in favor of modal skepticism, right? And but they so they would not believe and they would not believe non-resistantly. They really made an effort, you know, to support their belief to really hear out what the theists are saying in favor of the position, but it just didn't work out. Those arguments fail because of modal skepticism. Uh, yeah, that, it seems like, yeah, you could deploy this argument from, mitig- you know, 
the argument from mitigated modal skepticism, you can sort of marshal it as support for the premise that there must be non-resistant non-belief because you cannot justify theistic knowledge. So I see that you could you could deploy it that way. I guess I haven't been thinking of it that way. Um, I've been thinking about it as a piece of data that isn't, the fact that it isn't surprising on naturalism because we, it's, it's sort of like the heart of my idea here is sort of like, isn't the nature scope and limits, aren't the nature scope and limits of modal knowledge perfectly exactly what you would expect in a naturalistic universe and not at all what you'd expect on a theistic universe? So I guess my focus has been on expecting it on naturalism and less so on the side that says not expecting it on theism. So you're sort of pushing me to think about that side of it. It's just sort of like, here's a piece of data that's better explained on theism. But um, now that you're pushing me on it, I'm not, I have to sort of think about the, I wouldn't expect it on theism part. So uh, I think I agree. Like, yeah, you would expect this on naturalism, this uh, mitigated modal skepticism. But yeah, it's like the, it predicts it. Yeah. Right. But on theism, to say why is it unexpected on theism because we expect that a loving god would want us to have knowledge of him which is basically the hiddenness premise yeah we couldn't know god's justifying reasons for giving us mitigated modal skepticism okay <laughs> yeah skeptical, skeptical mitigation <laughs> I know. It's so, uh, that's nice. Um, <laughs> let me, yeah, it's interesting. You guys are pushing me on this and it's good. You're pushing me on it now. Cause I'm sort of like in a, this project is still in its nascent state. I'm such a um, procrastinator on this. I'm always like, I'm going to get to this project, but first I want to do this. <laughs> but now I'm finally finishing up the stuff I wanted to do. I'm, I'm finally getting, to it in earnest. I hope to get to it in earnest over the summer break. Uh, but yeah, I just finished up uh, a book with Josh Rasmussen. It's coming out. How was that? I bet that was just an awesome. I can't wait to get him on this show, man. Yeah, he is such a fun guy and interesting, very charitable, well, good person. And he's really, really smart. And he is what I think are the best, for example, cosmological or arguments from contingency. For sure. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, that was such a fun project. I'm kind of nervous right now because um, there's all these typos and sort of sort of grammatical infelicities in the current draft while it's going to production phase. I just contacted the um, the the production editor. Hey, can, is there still a chance for me to fix these things? And he's like, Yeah, don't worry about it. So, but I was nervous that there was going to be oh, <laughs> going to have these clumsy sentences. I would have been nervous too. Yeah, I was teaching, this last semester I was teaching six classes. So I was sort of like, in my commute right now is um, two hours each way to work. So I was just been oh, racing man. whenever I have a spare minute to to work on the book. And now I'm like, oh, I want to clean it up. Uh, for, I, it's, for the most part, it's good shape. There's just a couple embarrassing sentences there. So, so thankfully, I'll be able to clean them up. But yeah, that was such a fun project. It was just like, it really pushed me to sort of, flesh out a lot of the details on my own large-scale picture of reality that oh, I otherwise awesome. wouldn't have had an opportunity to. And, you know, he has a lot of really interesting arguments. I hope people like the book. But first of all, I hope they buy the book. <laughs> yeah, I, hope they, I hope they like that. But, it's yeah, it was really fun. What's the name of the book? You have to tell because... Ah. At some point it's going to come out, so... <laughs> yeah, it's it's slated, I think, to come out like September 5th. It's called, um, Is God the Best Explanation of Things? A Dialogue. And it's with I and Joshua Rasmussen. Oh, that's uh, it is awesome. Yeah, it's super, super fun. And um, Justin Cheever did one with Randall Rouser. Um, yeah. Like that, and that was, man, that's one of my, I just love that book. And yeah. I agree with both of uh, disagree with both of them at separate <laughs> but I loved I loved the 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 interaction. Yeah, as Plantinga says, that's just life and philosophy, right? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's like uh, yeah, very cordial uh, 
exchange. I have to confess, I haven't read the whole thing yet, but um, I plan to read the whole thing soon. But what I've read of it, very, very pleasant uh, exchange. Sort of like an ideal, sort of an ideal model of how interlocutors should should discuss these oh, things. Oh, for sure. So that's Absolutely. that's the model of your book with Josh Ramusen is a is a, more of a dialogue back and forth over the different arguments in cosmology. Yeah. So we try to be very sort of collegial, which is easy because, you know, um, he's a friend of mine. So I, well, that's great. I mean, that's a feather in your cap. I mean, you say you've got a chapter in a book by Graham Alpey, so, or edited yeah. by Graham. So, I mean, you're on the move, man. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I just, um, <laughs> I just had too much stuff going on, but hopefully now I'm, now I have enough time to do the stuff I want, uh, this stuff that I want to do. But a lot of that, a lot of the big stuff that I've been having on my plate is finally coming out to fruition. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So in your book with, uh, that you co-authored with Josh Rasmussen, surely you talk about contingency arguments. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Do you talk about modal skepticism there too and how that bears on the argument? Yep. So I, I, I raise concerns about how do we know that the universe is contingent in the relevant sense that, you know, it, it can fail to exist. And, and so I bring in mitigated modal skepticism to challenge that, that possibility premise. So one of the main arguments, I should say that I, I have another chapter as well in the Api Kotursky book or Kotursky Api book called causation and sufficient reason. I, I evaluate, you know, the Kalam argument and contingency arguments in there and including Josh's, but, uh, I bring it up. So I just want to mention, I bring it up there too, but it's, uh, I, I just say, well, our knowledge is limited to the humdrum when it comes to possibility. And it looks like this is going to happen with the arguments in our book, uh, my book with Josh. So, you know, one of the main arguments is the subtraction argument that says you can imagine a world where there's one less particle, one less particle, one less particle, right. Uh, or a series of worlds where in each, each world, there's one less particle than the one prior to it. Right. Until you get down to a world with just one particle, is that possible? Okay, so so now you you know you can't stop and say, well, you know, can we just erase that last particle? Um, sure. So that means that's equivalent to saying it's a possible world where there's no physical stuff, right? And that's evidence to show it's contingent. So that's the subtraction argument. It's like the main argument, main contemporary argument to show that the world is contingent in all that sense. And, you know, one of my main concerns is, you know, knowledge of that, you know, the modal knowledge in that argument better be traceable to our knowledge of the actual world through deduction, induction, abduction, and so forth. But it's not, right? Um, because we don't have any actual experience of even a single particle being subtracted, or at least, right, not the matter that makes up the particle. The conservation laws it don't allow for that. Yeah. So, so you, we have zero empirical evidence for even, you know, one tiny unit of energy, of matter energy in the universe. And so the argument gets a zero as far as I'm concerned. And so, you know, I also talk about, well, you'd also need a material cause. And so you can't get matter from nothing. And so since these arguments depend on God creating the universe from nothing, they don't feel too. That's a very That's interesting take. I haven't. I'm not used to hearing that kind of reply on the argument for contingency. That's very interesting and new. Oh, cool! I hope you. I hope you are being persuaded by it. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm all on the brute facts in eternal yeah. universe, and it's just brute because brute facts exist on theism too. So eh. yeah, <laughs> sure, it's contingent. It's brute. Whatever. Yeah, I'm starting to get to that point. You know, it's, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm starting in the book. I, I sort of say, well, let's just grant that it's factually or metaphysically necessary sort of matter energy. I'm starting to think that the universe might be metaphysically necessary. And in fact, it might have its structure of metaphysical necessity. I wanted to plug, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to plug the work of a philosopher named Carrie McKenzie. Carrie McKenzie, um, she does philosophy of physics at UC San Diego. And, you know, a lot of his, her work is, I says, like on philosophy of uh, physics and metaphysics of science. 
but she should her her work needs to be advertised as important work in modal epistemology because she's just written what I think are the most devastating arguments for sort of rationalist modal knowledge, sort of armchair knowledge of possibility. I think she's just utterly, fatally undermined, you know, say David Lewis's armchair metaphysics. Just is very influential. Yes. She's completely annihilated it in my view. Like, so in, in one of her papers, she argues, look, you know, here's one, here's one stab at it. You know, metaphysics in metaphysics, analytic metaphysicians routinely say, well, consider a one particle world or a lone proton world, right? Surely that's possible. And the answer is no, it is not. <laughs> you know, to even have a particle, you have to have a Higgs field, right? If, if, you know, relativ- relativistic quantum field theory is true, Particles are field excitations. That's what they are. And so you have to have a, a Higgs field. And given supersymmetry, you can't have a single particle. You have to have an antiparticle. And, get, you know, um, you, you're going to have to have, a, you know, any universe like this, you're going to have to have fermions. And to have any fermions, you have to have a certain number of kinds of bosons. And all of this stuff is just, all these intuitions have just been thoroughly defeated by our knowledge of fundamental physics. Like you just can't now, in effect, sort of like our armchair intuitions have been found out and they're just wrong. So you could, I mean, you could, that's a strong claim, right? You could come back and say, well, for all we know, there's a possible world with different laws of physics. Yeah. yeah and you're like, you know what, man, you bet. Um, wink, wink. You, you bet, <laughs> you know, think cornucopian, um, and there's more of that where that came from. Um, you bet, buddy. Um, sure, it's epistemically possible. We can't rule it out as impossible, given what we know. But by the same token, we have no idea whether it's possible. <laughs> uh, it just seems and, to be this whole thing boils down to, well, if it's not logically contradictory, it's possible, yes. right? Which, That's, what yeah. else is there to rule it out? I don't see. I'm just not seeing something. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, you bet, you know, I can't rule out it's impossible that Goldbach's conjecture is false. So I guess it's possibly false, in which case now I've just I've I don't have to write a paper in the annals of mathematics to refute Goldbach's conjecture. <laughs> I just did, <laughs> you know, or, you know, it, it, it. oh, I, I mentioned Van Inwagen before about his critique of dualism. He said, uh, let me see. Peter Van Inwagen is probably one of the most influential metaphysicians living today. Yeah, yeah, he he rocks. He is a theist, and he is also a physicalist of the mind, which is super interesting. Yeah, to be a a theist and say, well, there can't just be a disembodied soul. Come on. Yeah, uh, we're essentially material. Um, but yeah, so he says, you know, somebody might say dualism is true because check out this cool argument. It's possible that I exist and nothing immaterial exists, as Descartes right said, uh, or said roughly. Whatever is material is essentially material, therefore I'm not an immaterial thing. But you can come right back and say, um, I'm a material being. Whatever is material is essentially material, therefore it's not possible that I exist and nothing material exists. <laughs> right, you can just turn the argument on its head. This sort of GE Moore shift uh, <laughs> argument, where you just uh, serve it right back. Such a powerful tool. Yeah. yeah. One one man's modus pollens is another man modus tollens, right? Yeah, that's yeah. that's exactly right. It's really powerful. You, you see it on the problem of gratuitous evil, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, yeah. gratuitous evil exists. Gotha doesn't exist. No, no, no. God exists. Therefore, no, no evils are gratuitous. Yeah. <laughs> Done. Yeah, exactly. So, um, right. That should, um, what's interesting is more people aren't pushed by these sorts of points you make to some kind of agnosticism, like, uh, you know, one hot topic, or at least it used to be a hot topic recently, uh, is, uh, sort of, uh, 
epistemology of disagreement. What happens when two epistemic peers that are equally intelligent, knowledgeable, disagree about some point? Yep. What do you do? Do you stand steadfast and say, no, I'm right and you're wrong? Or are you a conciliationist who says, well, no, there, that gives me reason to doubt that I'm right. <laughs> so we should probably cancel out, our intuition should probably cancel out in agnosticism about the point of dispute. And I think the same thing should go on in some debates in philosophy of religion, like equally smart and knowledgeable people. I think that has hard implications if you apply it to ethics, though. So yeah. then you just can't be a moral realist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? So yeah. I think that's where that lies. Yeah. So you might say, uh, and this sort of goes back to your point when you brought up uh, Planiga's parody argument. It says, aren't they on a par? Belief in God and belief in other minds and the pure world. And you might say no, because, and Philip Quinn made this point way back in the day. He says, he didn't put it this way, but... I think this is what he wanted to say is belief in other minds and the material world and the past are more yet. <laughs> um, they have this strong force and vivacity that doesn't get sunk by consideration of skeptical scenarios. But the same can't be said for theism. Even Flanagan himself has said, sometimes I have these days where I'm like, could all of this really be true? <laughs> you know. And I think most people don't have Morian belief in God. I think most of them have weak and wavering help though my unbelief kind of faith. And you could say, you know, the fact that theists and atheists disagree and the fact that theists don't have Morian belief should sort of lead them to agnosticism. <laughs> At least for some of them. <laughs> you know, the ones who's I guess, you know, somebody who who has this sort of planning of faith. <laughs> Uh, the sort of Morian faith, maybe, maybe. So before we before we wrap things up, you were going to say something about uh, Peter Van Inwagen's physicalist view, and we derailed about... you thoroughly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, oh all I was going to say was that um, Morian, the G.E. Moore shift argument. Oh. Oh, oh, about his, I myself, I, I don't really have anything to say about that. I, I myself am not a materialist about the mind. I'm a <gasps> My vapors. <laughs> I hope yeah, you I'm, I'm a selling monist, but I a neutral monist. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Is that so, I'm in? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I am still persuaded by you know the good old knowledge argument that doesn't even persuade Frank Jackson anymore. But I think he's. <laughs> I still think it's. I'm. I'm just like doggone it. Uh, I can't sink the feeling that the mental can't be reduced to the. Physical but, I'm, one? but I'm not a philosopher of mine, so who knows? Hey, I got a, I got a blog post on that information yeah, yeah. about oh, uh, particles going through. Or... They're probably all faults, and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to. What's it called? I'll, I'll have to read it. Oh, I'll have to send it later. <laughs> okay. I'll okay. Cool. It. Yeah, I know. I don't. I don't know the ins and outs. I didn't specialize in uh, philosophy of mind, so you know. I'm not the one to ask. I, all I can say is that I've sort of like tentatively, I accept some kind of Brazilian monism. <laughs> uh, but that's, I'm not. That's, that's sometimes it's the best we can do. Like these are just yeah. perennial questions of philosophy that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like, well, here's a case that could be made. Um, yeah. even... And none of us are going to have the last word on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> By the way, for any of our listeners who are interested in the topic of philosophy of mind, I was just watching Kane B on YouTube. He has a couple of videos on eliminative materialism. He, he did a good job of making it seem less absurd than it seems initially. Um, it seems ridiculous on the face. Yeah, made it a lot clearer than it was to me before. Yeah. Um, I was like, wait, we also, don't have beliefs or intentions? What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i know i i, I uh, there's so many gaps in my knowledge of branches of philosophy and topics it's, it's like you feel like you're never going to catch up oh no you never will yeah <laughs> well so at least i'll never be bored i guess yeah. you're hoping for an afterlife <laughs> yeah that's right no, i'm not down for that <laughs> <laughs> A new C inductive argument for theism from <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right, so. did you have anything else, John? No, I think we're good.
No, thank you very much. It's been yes. a wonderful conversation. Thank you for coming on again. Obviously, this is it's always such an honor to have you on. And man, what a great conversation. It's always fun to um, talk shop with you guys and just uh, hang out and talk about uh, philosophy. So. If you appreciate the tone and content of what Real Atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review for us on iTunes. All music was created by Work of Wolves. We here at Real Atheology would like to thank our Patreons. Kashi Savarina, Paul Pinos, Richard Kane, Lucas Stewart, Brandon McClarity, John Damon, Michael Tofsrud, Roe Wilms, Ed Atkinson, Kid Blachowski, Andrew Schneider, Jason McLuta, St. Nimbus, Bob April, and Alexander Sange. If you're interested in supporting Real Atheology, you can please come to our page at patreon.com slash realatheology.